I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And we are the hosts of the podcast, They're Terrified and Tipsy. And you're listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Cheers! This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again. My name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks. On today's show, I'll be talking to composer of the Disney Plus MCU series, Loki, and without doubt, one of the scores of 2021, Natalie Holt, in an interview conducted on Zoom in August 2021. During the interview, amongst other things, we talk about her career to date, how she acquired the assignment of scoring Loki, as well as playing music from her acclaimed score, and as well sample some more works composed by Natalie Holt. Natalie Holt, welcome to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast Network. Hello, great to meet you. Firstly, tell us how you got into film and TV music. My mum was a music teacher and lots of music in the house. My dad's an enthusiast as well. And my grandmother was a violinist, so I guess it was in the family. And I still play on her violin, actually. I, I always loved making up pieces, even when I was small and then I think watching E.T. and hearing that theme in E.T. was the thing that really got me into film composing to be honest mm. or, or just noticing music in film. I've always really picked up on music and focused in on it when I'm watching a film but I had no idea how to kind of make that into a job until much later on. When did you realise you wanted to make film music a career? Um, so I guess, well, I had a boyfriend when I was, I think, yeah, he was on his gap year. He was a year older than me. And he had a gap year where he worked as a runner at Abbey Road. And I went to visit him and he like sneaked me in on the back of some sessions. I remember seeing Trevor Jones doing um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And I sat there all day and just watched the magic happen in Studio One with a giant orchestra. And then Trevor gave us tickets to the film premiere, took us out for dinner. because He was really sweet and I remember chatting to him and that was really when I was like, oh, I want to do that. That's an amazing job. <laughs> and then I yeah, did a course on film composing. I was studying the violin at the time, but just got more and more pulled over to studying composing. And then um, one of my tutors recommended this course at the National Film and Television School, a master's where you could just do composing for screen and 
that's what I did. And that was really the, the thing that got me going. As a violinist, you actually performed at the Olympic Games. What was your memories of doing that? Oh, that was, yeah. I, I mean, I used to do touring with different bands to kind of make some money because obviously it takes a while before people want to employ you when you've got a master's and you leave film school and you've got no work. So yeah, I was teaching the violin and doing sessions and playing. And one of the bands that I was playing with were Madness. I did a tour with them and they were booked to play on a float at the Olympic Games and they asked us to my quartet that I was in at the time to play with them. So we had to, I th- we pre-recorded it and then sort of <laughs> had to play on a float going around the middle of the Olympic Stadium at the closing ceremony, followed by all these different, like Annie Lennox and Paul McCartney, all these amazing musicians. So it's really cool to be there and be part of that. 2012, eh? Nine years ago, I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How did you get your first assignment in the industry? Um, well, obviously, when you're studying at film school, you get paired up with director. They've got like a fiction, animation and a documentary six at the time I was there. I think it's like tripled since I was there. They've The intake is much bigger because they've built like a big swanky um, add on to what was there when I was there. But so you get paired up with different directors and I worked on loads of short films during my master's course. Those were technically my first assignments, I guess. Um, and then I did a pilot for Tiger Aspect just after I left with one of the directors who who I scored his graduation film. And then, like, yeah, just could not get any work. Like, had no idea. I didn't have an agent. I did. I couldn't see a way of getting to the work. Uh-huh. So, yeah, as I said, I had to teach violin and play violin three, six or seven years. And then I started assisting Martin Phipps. How did your collaboration with Martin Phipps come about and how much of, of an influence has he been in your career? Um, so, yeah, he, he obviously went to NFTS a bit before me, <laughs> maybe 15 years before me or something. So I knew he, he was one of the alumni and you can kind of contact people for, that they have like a good sort of networking system for graduates talking to people just like how do I get into doing this and I was always trying to email people and get people's numbers and pester people and like do you need a composer because it's not like a cinematographer where you can't have something without someone acting or shooting but like a composer it's not an essential in every you know like especially in documentaries and stuff you can use library music so there's not always even an opening it just felt very difficult. So yeah, I and, and one of those kind of brainstorming sessions of like how to kind of enter into the industry, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll try and contact a few NFTS graduates who, who've had some success. And Martin, I emailed him and I was like, can I meet you for coffee and just talk to you about how to get a job? And we met for coffee and he took my demo CD, as it were, you know, we used to have CDs with music on 10 years ago. And yeah, and then he got in touch about six months later and said, oh, I've got a project I, I could use a hand with. Are you free? And I wasn't free, actually. I was playing at the Royal Variety Show and I was like driving up to Manchester and trying to cram in writing things for him and playing the violin during the day. But um, yeah, you know, you, you make these things work, don't you? <laughs>
Do you have a set process in scoring film and TV? I just feel like I'm always winging it slightly and cobbling it together. <laughs> like, yeah, I just feel like I sort of fumble my way through. I usually have an idea for a theme. I have an idea in my head of how I want it to sound. And then it's sort of battling with my computer to try and get the sound I'm after. And yeah, like get, getting musicians and, and recording and mixing things and fin like finally getting something that feels how I imagined it should be, if that makes any sense. Mm. So you're, you so you work on a computer and uh, do you have any people helping you with the orchestration? Yeah, do, I used and, to. And do you, con do you conduct as well? <laughs> yeah, I used to con orchestrate and conduct myself, but I just find, especially with TV, that the schedules don't allow it because you're usually, you're recording one episode and you're still writing the next episode. And I don't know how, I think maybe on a film you, you wouldn't be, looking ahead and but I don't know yeah I, I have people orchestrate for me now and I work with a conductor because I find often if you're in the room conducting you're not listening to the overall sound you're kind of I, I find that I'm sort of more distracted by doing that like if I'm in the control room I feel like you get a better overview so I work with a conductor called Andy Brown at the London Metropolitan Orchestra and yeah I, I've known him since I was 18 he was another one of these people that I kind of contacted and was like can you give me advice <laughs> so I've known him a really long time and it's been amazing to you know I used to play for him as well as a viola player and now being able to employ him it's kind of cool did you play as a violinist in some film scores before you became a, a composer who did you play for so I've played for Barrington Feelong I actually did some on-camera stuff for Inspector Morse there's an episode of my quartet we played at Blenheim Palace and, and we were kind of on in the background at a party. Actually, yeah, it was Lewis. I just remember being at Blenheim Palace. I've never seen the episode, but every now and then I'll have like, it'll be on a repeat or something on television and my uncle messaged me and goes, will you be background in an episode? You know, get the odd message. Yeah. Um, who else? I played a Lorne Balf, um, Atlee Olverson I've played for, Elan Eshkerry, Michael Price. I've played for, yeah, all sorts of people. And you often go in and just play and you don't even know what the film is. You just uh -huh. kind of sit there and do a three-hour session. How do you go about choosing your assignments? Choosing my assignments? Um, well, I'll be really honest. I just would take whatever I was offered. I think only in the last year or so um, am I being having to turn things down. Um, like before that, it was, it was just like things were coming through and I was pitching for things. And yeah, I was taking what I was being offered. But it's sort of getting to a point now where I'm, I'm having to choose what I'm doing more and thinking like, oh, I, I want to kind of, do I want to go down a kind of action movie path now or like do I want to kind of do an art house movie or how do I want my career to look? Is this project suitable? Blah, blah, blah. You know, you just kind of shape your career slightly because I think you get a reputation for, from the things that you choose to do at a certain point. Obviously, you have to kind of get there. <laughs> Without saying what it was, 
Has the situation arisen that you've worked on a school for a production that you have not enjoyed working on? Um, I've had amazing, amazing things where I've, I just feel so lucky to have been asked to do the job and everyone, you know, like great editors and directors and you just feel this kind of synergy and just like you're all on the same page and it's really easy and they like what you're doing and you like what they're doing and it just flows. And then I think the jobs that are unpleasant, I, w- I d- didn't necessarily recognise from the get-go, but you, the, just the relationship with the director doesn't blossom and it feels like a bit of a struggle and they're perhaps not, what you're, you're just not sharing the same vision. And those are the projects that have been less pleasant. But obviously I'm just grateful for for everything because obviously like there was a point there for about seven or eight years in my 20s where I really didn't think I was going to have a career as a film composer because I could not get a job for love or, or no money and I was having to teach the violin so yeah I still I feel like I'm grateful even when the job's difficult I'm still just excited to be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I see from talking to some composers like yourself it's really the game of patience in the industry thankfully your patience has paid off and uh, I mean it's great. Now then, you worked on a number of projects as an assistant composer, including painting and some others. Explain the process of being an assistant composer, how you were brought in. Was this planned in advance or were you brought in because the composer was running out of time and needed help completing the project? Um, well, so Martin Phipps is a, I think he was a bassoon player and very much like into electronics and producing kind of synths and yeah he's he's kind of a hybrid composer I think and he just was working on The Honourable Woman and listening through to a lot of the temp tracks that the that the director had placed and they were kind of things like Gabrielle Yarad from The English Patient and like Bach and very kind of string led pieces and I think he just was feeling a little bit like he needed some help to kind of make that fly because it wasn't his area that he was really comfortable in just as like if someone asked me to do a really electronic score I'd be struggling because I'm more into the orchestral analogy world and so Martin I think because he'd heard my demo cd and I'd got lots of orchestral pieces on there lots of string solos and stuff and he just heard that and thought oh she'd be able to contribute and be helpful so that's how that first job came about and then yeah we just kind of had a really good collaborative way of working together that um just seemed to flow and and was good so he he asked me to do like a number of projects with him and and I think I find it like if you take on more than one project and often you don't mean to but things overrun and you're suddenly working on two or three projects at the same time and you, you just can't get through it all and you think your schedule gets compacted and you're delivering like two episodes in a week and you just you just need help you need people to help you get your ideas out the door and you know maybe you'll like I think a number of composers like Lorne Balfe I think has a big team who help him and he'll do the suite and he'll set the themes and he'll he'll but he'll just you know have people helping him get things out the door because he's if you look at the number of projects that he's delivering out into the world every year it's like I don't think one person could do that on their own without a team how did your stint as an assistant composer on painting come about um I actually auditioned I did a pitch to score Paddington I think I nearly maybe got the job I don't know I think it was close and and they ended up going with a different composer there just came a certain point where I think that composer just needed a bit of help. There was like a big orchestral piece at the beginning and I just had a phone call, like, could you come in and help? It was just very near the end of the delivery process. So, and I was like, sure, brilliant. So I was really happy to go in and help. And actually I was pregnant when I pitched for that. So I would have been having to just have a baby and and work at the same time, which would have been tricky. And as it was, I, I think my daughter was three months old when they asked me if I could go and help. So that was slightly easier than giving birth on the job, I, I think. I don't know. Uh, I see. Tell us about your work on Victoria, which you won a primetime Emmy in 2016. Um, yeah, that was Martin Phipps again. We, we just did the pilot episode, which was a 90-minute setting up the whole kind of 
origin of Victoria and, and the credit music and everything. And yeah, it was episode one and Martin and I scored that together. Ruth Barrett ended up coming in and taking over the rest of the show. So that was really cool that that, that was kind of recognised in that way. That was a, a real surprise and, and great. And you won an Ivor Novello Award in 2017 for your score for An Honourable Woman. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All of these awards are just um, really amazing to have received. And <laughs> yeah, always um, just grateful to Martin for putting me on the cue sheet because I, I know many composers wouldn't. So, yeah. Now, Natalie, let's talk about your recent work, the small matter of the Disney Plus MCU series, Loki. How did you get assigned to the project and how did you go about scoring the series? So, yeah, there was like a general call out of a kind of action sci-fi drama that had to send in a showreel and you didn't really know what it was. And then obviously they liked my demo reel and then I received the script. And I realised what the project was at that point. And then had a chat with the Kate Heron and Kevin Wright. I had to pitch on a scene, which was the time theatre scene when Loki and Mobius go down in, in the elevator into the time theatre. So I scored a sort of 10 minute long scene and then hadn't taken notes from what Kate had mentioned in the first meeting that we'd had. I did it in about two weeks, I suppose. It took, I just kind of really went to town and recorded lots of live instruments and the theremin and and luckily Kate responded to it and I got the job.
Loki must be your breakout score and your best known work to date. How have you coped with the publicity in all the interviews, including two for myself over these last few weeks since Loki was released? Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm really flattered that people are interested and I'm glad that people liked what I did. And it, it was really lovely last week. We had a, a, a meetup with um, Tom and Sophie and all the execs at Marvel and, and Autumn and Kazra, the production designer. It was just lovely that like to kind of be at the end and have that sort of everyone just feel like this huge sense of satisfaction at how, it, how it's been received. And yeah, it's just really amazing to be part of something that's landed with people and, and had such had an impact. Yeah. Have you been signed up for season two? Um, I'm not. <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed to talk about that. That's okay. It doesn't matter as I do hope you are signed up for season two so to continue your musical journey on Loki. And the score is amazing for the entire series. And I really do hope you get a chance to continue writing for the series. Now, as a Cinematic Sound Radio Network exclusive, I asked... Natalie, on our interview with uh, Film Score Monthly, what was her favourite piece that uh, she scored on Loki? And it clearly appeared you were not allowed to answer me because it was from an episode towards the end of the series, which had not gone out yet at the time of interview. And now the series is finished. So, Natalie, again, what part of Loki did you enjoy scoring? The most? Um, I loved scoring the Requiem where 
he who remains gives his backstory and and he kind of talks about how he created Elias and he he just gives this speech and I, I I just kind of came up with the idea that there should be that could be like a requiem behind what he was saying and he because he says and then it exploded and mm. and he sings and he says oh man and and I just like pitched it so that the choir went with him and and sung oh man at the same time and I just felt that musically there was nothing there like no one had thought of putting music underneath what he was saying and it just felt satisfying to get to do that <laughs> and, and then I used all the different themes I even used some stuff from Miss Minutes in episode one I just, it just felt like really satisfying to bring everything together in that requiem just before he's killed oh yeah um and, and also scoring that scene when he was killed felt really good as well it felt like a really honed process Kate and I by that point she wanted to have it be silent and not kind of overscored and it, it, I think it's always nice when you do something and the director says no try this and then you do it and it's like oh that was that was a really good idea and that, that moment where he who remains was killed it was one of those moments that was Kate who pulled stripped it back
how did you describe your musical style? Um, <laughs> very much a chameleon. I'm always led by the story I'm trying to support and the characters dictate what I write. If someone asked me to sit down and write a symphony without any visual um, or, or narrative going along, I'd be stuck. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I'm a chameleon. I think that would be my style. Which composers influence your work? Huge respect for all sorts of different people and loads of amazing film composers. I think I said John Williams, I think has to be my go-to. I think he was the gateway into me noticing film music. So I think he gets number one spot. And then after that, it's a bit more free-for-all, like many influences. But I think I'd always go back to classical music and I'm always listening to Beethoven and Prokofiev and studying scores and looking at different ways of getting orchestral colours, listening to Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 6 the other day and just always going back to classical, I think, because that's how I learnt and always yeah. taking inspiration from that. Yes, there's a classical piece in Loki, if I remember, serves me right. Oh, yeah, there was um, a harpsichord um, in the Times Theatre when he's having those flashbacks in Asgard. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> It works. <laughs> it was about like a sort of Renaissance play at that point with her cutting off her hair and everything. And I just oh, put the harpsichord in there and it seemed to fly. your music should be both functional in context but also good music to stand on its own yeah i think there's been a a kind of trend of music to be very backgrounded and for people to use loops and just very textural music that doesn't have very much melodic content for a number of years i think people have been a bit scared about having a big bold theme because they feel like it's old-fashioned i think there's maybe a shift hopefully people are kind of discovering melody and themes again and, and, and certainly I feel like that was something I was trying to to put into Loki. I, I feel like very often you can just watch a film and, and come away from it and just be like oh there was music there carrying me along but it didn't do anything it just supported it didn't didn't give me any extra so for me yeah I want to have extra I want to 
come away and have a theme in my head that, that I can hum and, and take me back into that place of the movie. So yeah, I think for me, having something that does stand alone, that's like a its own voice within a film is really important. I've worked on so many things where you have to boil down what you've done and you're just, you know, you're like, okay, fine, we'll keep it really minimal. Before Loki, but Loki felt like it had this, the narrative scale and the character and everything to be really big and bombastic and and people were kind of like, okay, cool, let's make this music big and bold. And it only works if the story supports it. You know, if it's like a small mini drama with two characters, like, obviously you can't do that. You have to be appropriate for the project as well. Well, one thing is certain, you've definitely composed a memorable theme for Loki, which will stick in my head for a long time to come. Now, when composing a score, do you initially write for yourself? Or is the only goal is to write for what the project demands of you? Um, I think, again, it's a balance. Yeah, you have to kind of write your instinct, write instinctively on a first pass and, and hope that, that your instinct aligns with the directors. And then if it doesn't, then you change it. And so sometimes you end up thinking, oh, crikey, I wouldn't have written that. But, you know, the director wanted me to. And that other times you feel like, oh, I've just managed to have exactly what I wanted on this project and I'm really happy with it. So yeah, it, 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 it's a balance, I think. Now, away from film music, what do you listen to to relax? Um, classical music, I think, quite a lot. And um, I listen to lots of podcasts. Like Cinematic Sound Radio podcast, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Do you check out soundtracks? Um, no, I don't. I'd be lying if I said I did. I mean, I listen to stuff on Spotify, but I don't kind of actively go out and buy soundtrack um, albums. Unlike me, you've got loads here. Like, it's a lot. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> yes, that's, that's most of my money just gone. <laughs> now, what are you working on at the moment? And listen, if, um, you, if you can tell us what you're working on at the moment. Well, I'm doing a movie and um, a TV series, and I'm still kind of early days on both of them, and I'm not, I've not quite sort of signed. I've got lots of projects that I'm looking into. <laughs> I think, like, since Loki's kind of been a bit crazy, like, the number of things I've had to read and look at, it's been it's been quite difficult. And I don't want to kind of take on loads and loads of stuff and, and not be able to do a good job. So um, I'm being a bit selective. But I have taken on my a film and a, a TV series. And then I've got a movie coming out on Netflix in the autumn, which I scored before the pandemic, called Fever Dream. Mm -hmm. So it's about Fever Dream. It's a foreign language film. It's set in Argentina and it's a story about a sort of mysterious illness and mother and daughter. And it's, it's kind of like a mystical journey, but it's a very beautiful film directed by Claudia Lalosa, who's a genius. I think she's amazing. Actually, how long did it take you to score productions like Fever Dream or, or Loki, for example? 
Loki was 10 months or something, I think. And Fever Dream was six months. What's the average time to... Work I, don't, I, really, I don't know. It depends on how early you're brought in. And sometimes they've had another composer that's been let go and you come in and it's mm. like a really quick... You get two months to score a film or something. So it's really variable. That has happened to you when you go into a place the composer you know, has been has good being rejected. How many times has that happened in, in your career so far? Yeah, that's yeah. always a bit yeah. um, painful. Have you, on the other side, had work rejected from a director and to mean taken off projects? No, it hasn't touched wood <laughs> happened to me yet, yeah. but um, I'm sure it will because it seems yeah. to happen to everybody. And it's, it's natural as well. It's like you're never going to get along and have a perfect relationship mm. with everyone. Stands to reason there's going to be the odd job where you can't, you know, make it work for whatever I reason. But it probably is a relief, you know, as well. Like, I think if you've been struggling and it's not been working, it's probably a relief for both you and the director to be like, okay, mm. this isn't, let's end this. It's like a relationship that's not working. It's yeah. like, okay, there's some element of relief to it, I'm sure. If it's mutual consent, that's not so bad, but if you, you really work so hard on the score, like, for example, Gabriel Yared's um, Troy, Oh, wait, what, yeah, a, what a great score that is, and it was just rejected, even though he, he was doing exactly what the director wanted. These things happen, but hopefully you will not have anything rejected from your work, fingers crossed. Finally, considering the success of Loki, how do you see your career developing in the future? Mm, I, I just hope that it, you know, carries on. It's hard, isn't it? I've had one project that seems to have got some traction and I could work on something that I think is amazing that's a massive flop and you just never know do you like I might be in a couple of years time unable to get work you just it's a bit of a dodgy industry like that isn't it mm. I don't think anyone has full kind of job guarantees other than you know John Williams <laughs> you have to build up your reputation don't you and yes I, I guess that's my aim is just to build my reputation and keep doing good work and hopefully people think I'm nice to work with and easy to work with and that's what I all I can hope for. Natalie Holt it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank you very much for joining us today on Talking Soundtracks. Thank you <laughs> lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed our interview with Natalie Holt today on Talking Soundtracks and if you want to know the pieces of music played on the show please go to the music playlist on the show's webpage on the Cinematic Sound Radio website at cinematicsound.net. The Talking Soundtracks theme music was composed by David Cassina. I leave you with more music from Natalie Holt's acclaimed score for the series Loki, with the cue entitled He Who Remains. My thanks again to Natalie Holt for joining us today, and to the next time, for me, Jason Drury, it's Take Care. Stay safe and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>